Welcome to the show, Brain Health, Unchaining Your Pain, and I'm really excited to talk to my friend, Tony McDougall. Welcome to the show. Dr. Ruth, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, for our conversation today. I know, we connected via the other Dr. Phil, so here we, here we are. And then um, Terry's got an amazing story to share. She's also um, author of her book, Winning the Game of Work, Career, Happiness and Success on Your Own Terms, which I can really relate to, by the way, based on my career experiences. But for those that don't know Terry, uh, she's an executive and career coach and CEO of Terry McDougal Coaching. She helps high achieving professionals achieve, remove obstacles that keep them stuck so that they can enjoy more success and satisfaction in their lives and careers. And before becoming a coach, Terry was a long time corporate marketing executive where she led teams, developed strategies and advised senior leaders to drive business results. And she's author of, as I said, winning the game of work, career happiness and success on your own terms. And she's also the host of the Marketing Mambo podcast, which I'm really excited to dive into. <laughs> so welcome. Well, thanks, Ruth. Good to be here. <laughs> so I'm really curious to know, what is it that you are super passionate about in life right now? I'm super passionate about helping people expand that sweet spot between their professional success and personal happiness. I encounter a lot of people who, you know, you might look at them from the outside and say, oh, they look so successful. They've got a great job, great title, making a lot of money, nice vacations, etc. But they're paying an extremely high price mm -hmm. for that, I call it quote unquote success, um, in terms of stress, burnout, anxiety, and sometimes even health and relationship problems. And mm. it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> no. You, you, can, you can actually sort of be in the flow and have more impact at work so you can be successful without killing yourself, mm. you know, without being on that constant, uh, you know, grind of the, the hamster wheel. Mm. And what is it that you think keeps people on that and I know we're going to explore this more and go into your story, but what is it that keeps people on that hamster wheel, do you think, from your personal experience of the clients that you've been serving? Well, it's always their beliefs about mm -hmm. what it will take to be successful. And for many high achievers, which I would say the vast majority of people I work with are high achievers, they have a, a track record of high educational attainment, success at work, etc. For many high achievers, they've really focused on external validation, meaning mm -hmm. that they've, they've tuned into what other people expect of them. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, obviously, when we're at work, we have to understand what our bosses expect, etc. But often, they've been so hyper focused on on what's the goal, what's the goal that somebody else has for me that they lose touch with their own inner wisdom, and very often lose touch with what they even want yeah. on, a, on a conscious level. Now, subconsciously, they know what they want. And that's, yeah. that's often what leads to the stress, to the burnout, to the anxiety, because they're almost having like a internal tug of war between this, you know, intellectual manager that's that's telling them things like you have to work you know 12 hours a day or you know you've got to to do this or that um and refuses to sort of step back and prioritize um and that inner part of themselves that you know maybe the inner child part that's like hey i just want to have some fun mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I mean what's yeah i kind of look at it like what's success if you if you really don't have the time and energy to enjoy it Hmm. Do you know, I really resonate with that because I think a lot of people, certainly in high achievers, can also use work to avoid the having the internal dialogue because it's yeah. too difficult or too painful, or they use it as an escape mechanism for mm -hmm. the problems they're experiencing sure. in, the, in the other parts of their lives, like that their relationships yep. could be failing and so mm -hmm. they plow their energy into work because yes. that's successful so they don't want to be seen as failing 
And so their solution is to keep demonstrating success in the workplace when in actually mm-hmm. f- actual fact, that's often what can be at the root cause of the failure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that they're having from a relationship level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for a lot of um, people who are, you know, more intellectualizers, a lot of times it's not easy to access that emotional side. And, you know, and I'll, I'll speak for myself. I mean, I had uh, quite a bit of trauma growing up, uh, moving around a lot. My parents divorced when I was young. And sometimes we have unprocessed emotion, you know, and we want to avoid it. And like you said, yeah. that if you can focus on, well, you know, I'm achieving, I'm, you know, going to grad school or I'm moving up the corporate ladder, we can sort of justify not paying attention to that emotional side of things, but it mm. does not go away. No. You know, it's there and it actually takes a lot of energy ultimately to avoid dealing with um, emotional pain, with emotional trauma. And nobody likes to go there, but it doesn't go away if you ignore it. And actually it gets worse because you amplify it. Because mm-hmm. what happens is, is because you're avoiding it, it's it's like a boiling pot. <laughs> it keeps bubbling away inside yes. to the point where actually, you know, your pressure pot, the steamer uh, has to let yeah. out the steam. Right. And if you, you know, if you take the analogy of a steamer, sometimes the lid comes off and it right. and it explodes. Makes a mess. In a, in yeah. a way that's uncontrollable. Dangerous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it, it takes a lot of energy to keep the lid on as well. Yeah. And any energy that we're spending on staying in survival mode, you know, like avoiding or fighting or judging or be feeling frustrated or angry or sad, that energy cannot be used for more productive activity. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of times in, in coaching, it's funny because I've had, I'm not a therapist, I'm an executive coach, but I'm trained as a coach. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sometimes people will will jokingly say, oh, you know, I told my wife I'm talking to my work therapist today because sometimes we end up talking about things that aren't about the project or about the boss or about that coworker. It really goes back to, you know, what's your belief around wanting to avoid what might be a difficult conversation? Mm. Because a lot of times it goes back to, oh, well, you know, my dad was a yeller or, you know, my mother had extremely high expectations for me and I couldn't do anything, you know, more than be perfect or I'd I'd hear about it. Mm. And, you know, if we don't really pull those things that are deep in our subconscious up to the conscious level and process it, to start to, you know, maybe replace those beliefs with something else, we will just unconsciously continue to play by that script. It's Mm. almost like if your operating system on your computer has a glitch in it, you know, whatever. Yes. Until you put that, you go in and you patch it, you like do the update on the operating (laughs) system because otherwise whatever you try to run on top of it, like maybe you're, you know, your operating system has the glitch, but you're trying to run Microsoft Word on top. And every time that you go to save, you know, it, it falls over. Right. It Or it <laughs> shuts down your computer. It's because you haven't really fixed the underlying issue. And, you know, in work, that might be like you're telling yourself like, oh, I have to please everyone around me. You know, I can never say no to anyone. Um, you know, some I've seen this very um, frequently where people are very accomplished, but when it comes to dealing with uh, authorities within the business, so their boss or their boss's boss, sometimes they shrink and they almost become a little bit childlike. So they don't show everything that they're capable of doing. Yeah. And that, that sometimes can come from maybe having a parent who is distant or judgmental. And so they sort of unconsciously project that onto authority of figures around them. And so they don't really show up the way that they truly are or what mm-hmm. they're you know they're, they don't show up the way that they're capable of of operating in front of these authority mm-hmm. figures and sometimes we you know people can find that they attract those people absolutely consciously because they're exhibiting a behavior where mm-hmm. you know those that that kind of relationship mm-hmm. you know is is 
it's formed and without like you say taking the time to go into your operating system mm -hmm. understanding the software that's running in the background yeah absolutely you exhibit these you know behaviors that isn't really you or not the behaviors you want to be exhibiting um mm -hmm. you are always going to be attracting the these problems or not always but there is a risk that you could mm -hmm. be attracting these problems but I know it gets worse than that as well because often people who are having these unconscious thoughts that are running in the background they end up sabotaging as well their actual hardware mm -hmm. um, which is how their brain functions through the actions that they do so they're adding mm -hmm. a layer of dysfunction uh, on their on their computer hardware right their brain mm -hmm. hardware and that becomes even less efficient <laughs> because it can't yeah. function properly from a hardware perspective sure. on top of the software issues that, that they have. And a, a classic example is the self-sabotage with inappropriate food food and drink yep. Yep. That, that, or drugs and uh, alcohol as the other smoking sure. and things that sabotages your, your hardware in your brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and then mm -hmm. you, you layer on top the the software issues as well i'd love to dive into your story but before we do what what is optimal brain health mean for you personally in the context of your story well it means maintaining appropriate energy to do the things that are important to me in my life um, mm. I've had times, you know, earlier in my life where I really did sort of, you know, sink into a funk, you know, maybe would feel overly anxious or overly, um, I, I wouldn't say depressed, but down, like have, mm. you know, kind of heavy moods. And back then I didn't really realize that I had control over that. You know, I, I mm. didn't. I would just sort of allow myself to kind of get pulled along with those subconscious beliefs until, you know, over time, I realized that if, if I changed the way I thought that my moods would change, you know? And so I, I, I take a lot more responsibility for that now when I used to sort of feel like a little bit more at a hostage of, mm. of uh, those moods based on my own thoughts. Yeah. And we don't get taught this, do we? I mean, I, no. I didn't learn this until I became a, a brain health coach myself. Mm -hmm. um, how how important listening to our thoughts that, that in, in essence, run our operating system and thoughts drive our feelings, our, our, our emotions and our emotions drive our actions, mm -hmm. our actions drive our connection to to ourselves and, and to other people. And the whole environment or our surroundings really, really influence everything associated with with how how we show up and how how we true truly operate. And I love you mentioned that energy is so important from a brain health perspective. Rex Miller mentioned this in an earlier show, and it is fundamental for me personally as well because we can put so much of our energy, as you said, into fighting. Emo emotions that we haven't addressed and trying to keep a mm -hmm. little bit yeah um, and not leveraging the energy that we do have to to embrace the emotions in a positive way and I like to think of emotions like a wave it takes a lot of energy to dive down and swim beneath the wave and avoid it it's 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 much more efficient when you use the wave and learn how to ride it but you have to learn to ride it. <laughs> so you have to learn when that wave, it, you know, when when that wave is coming. You have to know when that where it where it is in the in the context of the ocean of emotions. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to know where where it is and how you can leverage its power to get you to where you want to go, um, uh, and and use it because emotion is just a signal that is telling us that we need to do something um, in order to dissipate some uh, built up energy whether that's emotional energy physical energy uh, spiritual energy or, or or mental energy but it's about that using the energy to to best effect i'd love to dive into your story could could you take me back to the time when your energy levels were really at the lowest point and you can go back as far as you like oh my gosh um you know <laughs> 
Well, I'll just briefly talk about sort of my origin story, if you will, um, and then I can take you to an, uh, a part where my energy level was at its lowest part. So I was born to very, very young parents. My mother actually had to drop out of high school to have me, and that was I was <laughs> I was uh, what caused them to have to get married <laughs> back okay. in the 1960s. Um, but my dad got a job with the uh, American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AT&T, and um, he was on this work crew that traveled all throughout the Southeast and the U.S. burying the long distance cables. And wow. because they were working, it was basically, you know, just a se constant series of construction projects. Mm -hmm. And some of those projects might be two weeks. Some of them might be, you know, three or four months. But mm. I moved uh, 41 times by the time I was 11 years old. Wow. And uh, most of those moves were before I started school, but still, you know, there was constant um, upheaval and disruption. And even when I got into school, every year I went to a different school between kindergarten and fifth grade. And wow. um, so there was just a lot of, you know, uh, disruption and so forth. And I think that there were some positive things that I learned during that time, how to be very self-sufficient, how to size up situations quickly. Um, but there were also some kind of self-protective mechanisms that I uh, learned. I mean, I think the flip side of being self-sufficient is that I, I wasn't really keen on, you know, reaching out and making friends with other people because I mm -hmm. kind of knew on a certain level you that, couldn't. okay, you know, I'm going to be gone in a few months, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes I was kind of lonely. It wasn't that I didn't make friends. You know, I was always friendly yeah. if somebody reached out to me, but I was a little more at the mercy of who decided that they were going to be my friend, which there was always somebody that would be like, oh, the new girl, I'm going to be your friend. Um, but yeah. there, there's a lot of things that I look back and the more I've told my story, the more I actually understand this myself. Um, there's a lot of things that, it formed me in positive ways, and it also caused me to have some coping mechanism that, mechanisms that I've had to get over later mm -hmm. in my life. And I also want to touch on something that you talked about earlier with um, how we aren't taught to, you know, really examine our thoughts and see how it affects us emotionally. You know, a lot of times, I mean, most of the time, we just sort of inherit a lot of habits that other people in our family have, you know? And so yeah. when I think back to, you know, my childhood, my parents were so young. My mother actually turned 17 two weeks after I was born. So she wow. was so super young. She, young. she had to drop out of high school after 10th grade to get married. <laughs> so crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, she wasn't even, you know, really a mature adult. And so both She's of my parents- yeah, she's really, that's, that's right. And she didn't have the benefit of perspective and, and learning, you know, that comes with more mature parenthood. And so as a child, you know, I probably didn't have the best role models to, you know, they didn't understand some of the, these things themselves. And so they weren't really, you know, modeling behavior, you know, that I know my mother especially was, was a bit of a victim of her own emotional state, you know, was often sort of yeah. on an emotional roller coaster. So and she would have been at just, you know, irrespective yeah. of falling pregnant, you know, that's when right. as a kid, we're on a huge emotional roller coaster, because that's when our emotional parts of our brain um, are highly active through that puberty period. And um, when we're developing, especially around the sort of you know, 15 to 18 era mm -hmm. where we're driven yeah. by the need for connection, that overriding emotional need to connect with peers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and the, and the um, you know, the unstable emotions and with all the hormones and everything else. Yeah, which you right. Had even, you know, amplified. And then she was a parent. disconnected, you know, because, yeah. because she was, you know, she was so young and, um, my, my parents bought a trailer, you know, so whenever, um, it was time to move on to the next town and, and it wasn't just always the next town. Sometimes it might be a couple States away, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, the like distance of the area that we moved, it was from, you know, I think 
like Indiana all the way to Florida and a lot of the states in between. So it's a wow. huge geographic area. It wasn't like, oh, let's go to the next town over and the next town over where you it might It wasn't like a one hour, two visit. hour, four hour drive. No, days. no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, um, you know, I had to figure out a lot of things for myself. <laughs> let's just put it yeah. that way. And I, And a lot of times I kind of felt like, my mother and I were kind of growing up together, you know, right. when I was a teenager, sometimes I kind of felt like I was a little bit older than she was. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, shifting to a time when I, I kind of had to face up to my own issues around, you know, mental health and so forth. Um, I was married, I was working full time as a marketing manager for a large bank. I had one child and, you know, becoming a parent to that one child was, it was pretty seamless. I was, you know, my husband and I were totally in love with him and just mm -hmm. everything was so great. And in fact, we, you know, loved being parents so much that my husband kept saying, when are we having another one? When are we having another one? So we, we ended up um, having our second son um, about, I'm trying to think, my, my oldest son was a year and nine months old. So, you know, basically wow. I got pregnant when he was a year That's old. That's really close. With, Yeah, it is. And, it, you know, it, I, I think that uh, I was a little bit naive because I was like, oh, my my child is an angel. And look, at he's like such a good boy. And of course, by the time my second was born, born my oldest was like close to the terrible twos, right? Yeah. And it's, it's all natural, right? But he wasn't like that docile, uh, you know. <laughs> He was still a sweet boy, but he wasn't docile. He was going, running around doing crazy things, you know. And so I can remember being home for maternity leave. And I think I had a little bit of postpartum depression, number one. Uh -huh. And um, I did take like three months off for a maternity leave. But um, having a very active toddler and having my second son, who actually was um, he was kind of colicky. He was very mm -hmm. hard to comfort. He cried a lot. He didn't go to sleep. And so he was a little bit more difficult to parent than my, my first one had been. So like dealing with, you know, trying to keep my two-year-old from doing crazy things while I was trying to nurse my baby, I was, I was exhausted. And mm. I have always been pretty, I mean, I've learned to, um, soften this a bit, but always had very, very high expectations for myself. So, you know, when I was looking around my house and my house wasn't clean and the laundry was, was piling up while my husband was at work, I like my internal dialogue was just very, very harsh and negative, you know, like a lot of shoulds like, oh, you should be able to do all of this and you should be able to keep up the laundry. And my husband was actually very supportive. He'd just be like, mm. look, your job is to keep the kids alive, you know, <laughs> but I just, I, I just really was, you know, mentally grinding on myself uh, by, by telling myself, like, I had to be perfect in every way. And I got to a point where I just was so angry. And I really was starting to kind of like, like, dip into depression. Um, I finally got some help, you know, mm. from a therapist. And I, I kind of woke up to the fact that, if I didn't learn how to bend, that I was going to break, you know? Yeah, and that's so a great I did, analogy. Yeah, because I w really was so rigid in my beliefs about what I quote unquote should be doing. Mm. And, and was that know, internal beliefs that you had manifested yourself or was it in beliefs that had been kind of imposed on you by the outside world and, you know, in society's expectations? Because, you know, as parents, especially, you know, in the sort of 60s and 70s, uh, you know, in early 80s, I know not it's not the, not quite the same now, but in the past it was, you know, you were expected as a as a mother to be able to do absolutely everything, clean the house, mm -hmm. wash the washing, mm -hmm. you know, put your makeup on, look beautiful, have your kids all dressed in their best. Uh, before, before, and I know that this is a very kind of sexist description but this is what it, the reality was wasn't it mm -hmm. um, and then be able to show up your best for your husband when they when they came home whenever that would be and have the dinner on <laughs> yeah yeah you know, um you know I don't, I don't know if it I, I think it was really more my own um the my own pressure that I was putting on myself now my mother was 
you know, she's pretty much a perfectionist. And so I suppose there were, I was taking cues from that, but I, I always had been able to keep all the plates spinning before this, you know, I, you know, I went to, uh, you know, elite college and then I got an MBA and I, you know, was always moving up in my career. And then I had this, you know, first child and he just fit right into the family. I was able to, again, keep all the plates spinning, but it was with the addition of a, a second child that, um, and it's not his fault by any, it's just the reality of a growing family. It's you know? reality and, of becoming a super mom. Because yeah. any person that has more than one child, it's hard enough having one child. And, and <laughs> when also you add another thing, on top, it's so much well, more complex. Absolutely. And a, a baby that is not mobile is relatively easy to care for. I mean, they cry a lot and you have to kind of plan your schedule around their sleep schedule and so forth. Mm-hmm. But when there's one child and two parents that are doting on that that child, it's not as hard. But when you when you, you know, add a new baby and then the older child is, you know, becoming more independent and I mean I can't even tell you how many times I'd be like chasing my two year old because he would, you know, grab scissors and start running around the house and I'd ha- I'd be trying to feed his brother and then I'd be like holding the infant to my breast and running around chasing the other one. It's just like and I know my mum, you know, I was a, I was the youngest of three uh-huh. and my mum had two kids. My brother's four and a half years old and my sister's seven. And mm-hmm. she couldn't breastfeed me because she said it was so disruptive. They wouldn't give her mm-hmm. the opportunity to breastfeed me Yeah, uh, because of the dynamic of the children's situation at home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting during that time because I really... I projected my anger onto my husband um, because I I suppose because I didn't understand that I had control over my thoughts at first. Um, And it was, you know, through going to see a therapist and then just making some very small steps. Like, for example, um, my husband and I actually started meeting for lunch. Like I, when I went back to work, he and I would meet for lunch, you know, we worked at different places, but we would meet yeah. for lunch because we could actually, you know, in some ways have a bit, little bit of a date, a lunch date <laughs> and have time alone without, you know, the overwhelming responsibility of these two little crazy boys that we had, you know, and they were very, very active. And it's funny because I, at that time, or I, I have three sisters, you know, and so when when I got married and we started having children, I always thought I want to have more than two kids. But after having two sons, I had a massive yard sale and got rid of all of the baby (laughs) stuff because I was like, oh my gosh, I, you know, there's no way that I can do this. (laughs) But I will tell you, I do have a third child, but she was born when my second one was four and a half years old. And so, you know, once they were like older and, you know, in, school and you know preschool or or regular school and that you know potty trained and all of that i was like i could take a breath and then we even at that point it wasn't like we're having another child we were like oh let's just see what happens and so we (laughs) ended up having a third um uh daughter and she's uh she's like an angel um i mean she's frustrating sometimes she's she's 18 now but um she was a very easy child. So I, you know, after, after juggling those two crazy little boys, I was like, okay, good. I get, I get a, you know, little, little daughter for me, you know, but uh, she's been a, she's been a joy. Actually, all three of them are joy, but. And did you you finish your therapy before you had your third was, did did, did that facilitate you to kind of take back control of your, of your thoughts? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, uh, there were a lot of things I had to accept. I mean, one of the other things that kind of um, had an impact on that was I was I was able to lose the baby weight after my first child pretty easily. But mm-hmm. after my second son, it didn't come off as easily. And I was possibly because you were stressed. Absolutely. Probably wasn't getting enough sleep. I might have yeah. had a little hormonal imbalance, which, you know, I'm a little upset with the doctors because I can remember going in and telling them that I was feeling sort of 
you know, listless and they just were like, oh, well, you know, well, you're new, you know, new mom. And, you know, of course you're going to be tired. And I, I wish that they would take that more seriously. I think now they finally are, but I think that that was part of it. Um, you know, I did, I did learn my lesson. And by the time that my, I mean, during that time, I was really, again, judgmental of myself as if I didn't have enough going on mm -hmm. for me to shame myself about not losing weight. And in fact, I, I wouldn't buy, I wasn't buying new clothes that fit me, you know, and so I didn't feel that good when I was going to work, you know, my pants were just a little tight. And because I was like, Oh, you know, you don't just lose the weight, you can get back into these clothes. But when my daughter was born, you know, a few years later, I just went out and bought some suits that were the right size. They were a couple of sizes bigger than my normal size. Yeah. But at least whenever I went into work, I felt like I was put together. I felt like I yeah. looked good. And that <laughs> actually helped, right? Because then it I, makes a huge difference. I think we difference. really downplay the importance of how we feel physically. Right. To how it makes us feel emotionally. I know when I was, you know, when I was, um, at my largest, I felt awful in myself. You know, I ended up yeah. losing 27 pounds in weight. Mm -hmm. But when you look, when you do the mirror test and you look at yourself, whether you've got clothes on or not, and you don't feel like you're show, you're the you're the you, mm -hmm. <laughs> it it really has a big impact on you psychologically. It really, it really does. And I mean, I um I think that we really need to treat ourselves as our best friends. You know, I think there's way too many um, times when we, you know, our internal dialogue is actually very harsh and very cruel. And we would yeah. never speak to another human being the way that we will speak to ourselves inside, you know, yeah. call ourselves names, you know, criticize the smallest little thing when in fact, we'd probably never do that to anyone else. And I, I really, yeah, we would never have that conversation with our no, best friends. you know, no, not like, Oh, that was an idiot move or, you know, you, you're, you know, you're fat and you're, you know, whatever. Like these were things that I thought back then, you know, Oh, you should be able to do this and that. And, you know, you're, you're not worthy if you're not keeping your house clean or like, you know, your house looks like a sty because you have laundry everywhere, you know, con. Yeah. And we compare ourselves in so many different ways, don't we? We compare ourselves physically, you know, in terms of how we look, mm -hmm. we compare ourselves emotionally in terms of how we're feeling and the feelings that we're having. And if we're having emotional wobbles, we say, you need to pull yourself together. You shouldn't be feeling mm -hmm. like this. We compare right. ourselves mentally if we've got brain fog, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, we, we compare how we can perform mentally uh, and then we compare ourselves spiritually as to whether we are, at, you know, showing up and doing what we think we ought to be able to doing and being the best uh, version yeah. of ourselves in the in the role that we we place ourselves in, you yeah. know, like being a parent or being a mother and new mum, mm -hmm. you feel you feel you have to you have to be a super mum, you know, and have everything yeah. all dialed in. And the reality is that's just not the case. Right. I, I absolutely, I, I completely agree with that. And I, you know, when I think back, you know, I don't think I gave myself enough credit for the miracle that I had performed in giving birth to two healthy children. Um, yeah. You know, that that's miraculous. And my body did that. <laughs> But yet I was I was treating it as if I should still be able to just bounce back to what I was like when I was 25 years old. Right. But that was a pre pregnancy body. Right. That's, you know, once you've gone through these transformations, um, you know, you, you've just evolved to something different. Right. And I think that and unfortunately, I think somewhat our society gives us as women messages that aren't the healthiest. But, you know, hmm. we as women and as mothers can also um, support ourselves to say, like, I'm not going to buy into that, right? We, we can be selective about the, you know, external judgments and beliefs that we allow or that we embrace, right? And if we, if we will just say to ourselves, like, hey, my body has performed a freaking miracle, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to focus on that rather than the fact that I, you know, I can't get into the same size jeans that I did, you know, five years ago. Yeah, I love that. And 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 I know you mentioned you went on therapy. Now, I'd love to touch on this mm -hmm. a little bit because some people, 
you know, when we when we learn about our thoughts and about taking back control of our our thoughts and knowing what the automatic negative thoughts are, and we can mm-hmm. have up to ninety thousand thoughts in a single day, and many of them are not not very positive, yeah. and not an awful lot of them we don't need to say out Um, How long did it take you to really take back control and learn the the techniques with regards to understanding your self-talk and and being able to control it? You know, it's hard for me to remember at this point, but, you know, I think I was probably going to that therapist for about a year. Mm. Um, And it was just very helpful to have, in some ways, like... um, you know, a backstop, you know, somebody to help me put things in the proper perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. so if I was saying things out loud that I was thinking that she could kind of mirror it back to me, and then I could, I could understand because it's, I say this all the time that you can't read the label from inside the bottle, you know, we are walking (laughs) around, isn't it? It's like so apt, because we're just walking (laughs) around being who we are. We're not thinking about like, what do I look like? How am I showing up? And when you work with a therapist or a coach, you know, they're holding a mirror up for you. So exactly. you, start, you can start to see yourself in context and be like, oh, like just what I said earlier, you know, I was not thinking about the fact that my body had performed this miracle that many people will pay, you know, tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars if they're having trouble with fertility, they will pay a lot of money to have what I had happen fairly easily. Um, And, you know, I need to give myself credit for that, right? I mean, not Mm. being critical in any way if somebody has fertility problems, but, you know, we all have things that are, that come easy and things that are harder. And just to understand it all in the context, not not look at the things that are hard and criticize ourselves for it, but like be grateful for the things that come easy so that you have the energy to address the things that are a little more difficult. You know, because and, you we know, all have t- our we all have our issues. <laughs> yeah, we do. And and you know, from a you know, be, becoming a mum perspective, it takes us nine months to make a baby right it takes us nine months to make a baby that's near you know that's three quarters of the year and Mm -hmm. we don't you know it takes us that long to make one it it takes a a lifetime to nurture one Mm -hmm. but we we think that we have to we're going to bounce back in like two three four weeks uh, and be able to perform everything (laughs) this right instantly with all of our hormonal levels you know crashing back down into a new norm and and, then sleep deprivation yeah (laughs) exactly in our brain changes so talking Mm -hmm. about you know sleep deprivation women uh, women who have babies um their brain changes so they go into a deep sleep uh much quicker post Mm -hmm. giving birth so that they have the ability to recover and perform better with sleep <laughs> deprivation than men yeah. can. That's why it's hard, It's easier generally for women to get up in the night than it is for men. Mm-hmm. And they feel much groggier because we've, we've biologically evolved to deal yeah, with that makes, sleep deprivation. It makes sense. Yeah, and it's, I will still say, hard. it's still hard. It, it is hard. I will say, though, that my husband was so kind. Like, he would get up and get my child and bring it to me to feed in the middle of the night so you know I still had to wake up to to feed him but I didn't have to get up he would do that which is Mm. sweet and Mm. I encourage any any of your listeners who are dads to do that (laughs) for their wives (laughs) because it was a huge gift you know I mean he yeah I mean he could get back to sleep pretty easily too so yeah you know he'd get up for two minutes and then be back snoring away next to me and the baby (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it, it it's so important to have that kind of dynamic, isn't it, to help you through those uh, It was very helpful. Yeah. Stages. But I really, you know, the fact that you took a year of therapy, it's just really testament to the fact that we don't learn how to manage our thoughts overnight. This is not an overnight process. It's not like pick up a manual or read a book and instantly you've got all the yeah. all the results. It's like picking up a, a book on how to become a parent. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and that's that a, just work because it doesn't work really, that way. We have to learn it, we have to practice right. it, we have to, you know, understand it, and and it really takes takes time to to learn how we can control ourselves. That's a very apt analogy about the parenting because you know obviously parenting a baby is different from parenting parenting a toddler is different than parenting a tween, and you know, you have to constantly be showing up to uh, face whatever challenges in front of you. And, you know, when we were talking about therapy, I mean, I feel like therapy is like peeling an onion. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've typically, um, you know, gone to therapy for a while. And then I feel like, okay, I've reached a, a place where I'm comfortable, or I've addressed whatever the issue was. And then maybe a couple years later, I'm facing new challenges. And I'll go back. You know, and because I've I've incorporated everything that I learned into myself, but then maybe I'm meeting a new challenge, and so I I go and get some help with that, and um, it's it's really and that's okay. Great. And, and yeah, I, think I mean, I think it's it's the smart thing to do, right? Exactly, exactly. I really agree because you know therapy is not about because you're failing; it's because you want to be successful. You know, right. I. You yeah. rigged a bump in the road and you want somebody to lift you over it or navigate you around it in a yes. way that you don't know how to. And that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. I ended up, um, there's somebody that I work with periodically now and she's a, a therapist, but she also is a, a Reiki practitioner. Oh, okay. And um, I, I had gone to therapy for a while and I kind of, I mean, maybe some people can relate to this, that sometimes you have challenges that it's hard to get over and get past. And I can remember talking to one therapist and saying, how long am I going to talk about this? Because I just felt I got tired of hearing myself talk about the same topic. And, and she said, well, you're going to talk about it as long as you need to. And then somebody said to me, you know, have you ever considered having energy work done? And I was like, what's energy yeah. work? But, you know, when we, when we sort of like, block our emotions when we don't allow that energy to flow like i've heard people talk about emotions as energy and motion and yeah. a lot of times we you know we'll like bottle it up right we we like you were talking earlier about like oh we're gonna watch tv or we're gonna overeat or drink or party or whatever um or work you know workaholic so i don't have to face the sadness or the anger or whatever um, but that does that energy does not leave your body. And in fact, it, doesn't it, becomes, go. it goes into your body. Actually, It goes into your body. And, um, you know, the beauty of working with uh, Stephanie is my therapist's name, working with her is that we would do regular therapy. And then she would actually, she has a massage table in her office, and she would we'd do an hour of therapy, and then 30 minutes of Reiki, where she'd say, Well, where do you feel that this energy is, is stuck in your body yeah. i don't know how to explain reiki but it i i'm a little bit of a skeptical person and i just remember the first time that she did it she kind of put her hands above my head on the table and the amount of heat that went through my body and like kind of connected with her hands was wow. kind of otherworldly but i really uh credit her with helping me like discover and process a lot of like, I don't know, lumps of molten <laughs> uh, energy. Yeah. That were just stuck. And yeah. when it takes energy to keep that, keep the lid on, you know, energy that's, or uh, emotion that's not processed. And yeah, so it really does. keeps, keeps you from having more energy to do things that are fun and, or, you know, yeah. just even step up and live your life. And it's, and it you know, as, you sick as well, really sick. Oh my gosh. Well, even after going through the, you know, the Reiki, she would say to me like, okay, I want you to go home and take it easy. Like maybe take an Epsom salt bath because you basically have had psychic surgery. And I did have some times where, I mean, this might even sound unbelievable, but I had times where I would come home from a session and I would have to stay in bed for the rest of the day because I was just so exhausted Yeah. because my body was like giving up something that it had, it had trapped within it. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it, but you know, people that I've seen, you know, friends that I've known for a long time that I hadn't seen for a while after I'd gone through, you know, working with Stephanie, cause I've worked with her for about five years now. Um, 
they'd be like, you, you just seem happier. And honestly, it's because I was, I was expending a lot of energy on, on keeping the lid on, you know, mm-hmm. some of the trauma, some of the, you know, negative beliefs that I had about myself that came from just how I was raised. Mm. Um, and again, it's not, I'm not, I, I mean, I think that my parents just didn't know any better than to just operate the way they operated, right? Yeah, and, so I'm and they were, had things. a really difficult time too, didn't they, given yeah. their age and yeah, the and need even to make money. That, and... Yeah, even before that, I mean, I, I, you know, if you look back over the generations, or I mean, I'll, I'll just speak for myself, I look back over the generations, it's like, okay, my um, my grandparents, you know, they came up through the depression and, mm. um, you know, both of my maternal grandparents were in the, um, in the army during World War II, you know, so it's, they lived through difficult times, you know, and that informed how they operated in their lives mm. and how they raised their children. And then that, that impacts how, you know, my parents raised, raised us. So, mm. you know, it's, if we can kind of step back from it and just realize like everybody does the best they can. Um, but it really is up to us to decide how we want to experience life. And, mm. you know, we mm. do have, it's not easy, but we can have more control over how we experience life if we're willing to take responsibility for the beliefs. And, you know, sometimes um, I think it can be a, a real eye opener for people to step away from their their patterns, right? Like I've worked with people who, you know, any feedback that they get from a coworker, from a boss, they take as like, you know, bitter criticism. Puts them in the, a flat spin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When, you know, it's actually actually their choice about how they take that, you know, and, mm. and I've, I wrote about this in my book that it's, it's very interesting to, to start to realize that, you know, it's your percept, your perception is your reality. And, you know, people will say, no, no, that's, this is exactly how it is. That person's being critical. They, they don't like me, whatever. These are things that you're telling yourself because we never know what other people think of us. But, you know, if we think that that person thinks that, that's really what's causing us pain. It's not because we don't know what somebody else thinks and we can No, choose. exactly. Unless we actually ask them. Uh, and even even if we ask them, they might not tell you the truth. They might not no. even have access to the truth. But <laughs> I I like to use an example, and I've thought about this with my husband and I. He's he's a pretty easygoing kind of person, and we've definitely been in places like we've been in the store or a restaurant or something, and and something happens in front of us, and you know I w- I might be like, oh my gosh, can you see? That's horrible. Did you see what just happened? And he'll be like, what's the big deal? <laughs> and it's really just because we have different belief systems, right? We have different yeah. beliefs about what quote unquote should happen. Yeah. Um, but if, if um, you know, our reactions to things are causing us pain, we can step back and say, you know, what's the belief that's causing me to have this reaction? And if we can, if we can pull that to the surface, we can ask ourselves, is this, ser- how's this serving me? Is this serving yeah. me well? And if it's not, what can I, what can I choose to replace it with? Yeah, I'd love to yeah. dive into that in, in, in the context of the five pillars of brain health, but just yeah. from a little bit of a fun facts perspective. Yeah. So the five pillars is feelings, our actions, our connections, our thoughts and our surroundings. So facts. Mm-hmm. So we say, let's look at the facts. So the mm-hmm. first one is feelings. What's the funniest or most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I, I will tell you like a humiliating thing that happened to me, which actually was a huge pivot point in my career was, um, I was the right-hand person of the head of marketing for a division of the bank where I worked. And, you know, I worked very, very closely with him. I like wrote most of the communications for the department. I was sort of his, um, you know, conversation partner to developing strategy and so forth. Um, but he was the face of the department. He left the company and I said to myself, I'd, I'd worked there for eight or nine years. And I thought, you know what? I think I'm ready to step up into that role. So I applied for the job, um, went through the first round of interviews with HR, fine. Mm-hmm. But the second round of interviews were in a different city with a panel of other marketers. And I, I mean, there were hundreds of marketers in the in the greater department. It's a very huge company. 
Um, and I knew these people, but I didn't know them on a day-to-day basis. I knew I'm like, oh, when we have the big like marketing offsites, I'd see them. But I didn't do anything to prepare. I just thought, oh, they know me and they like me. Um, so you didn't and connect I, with them and learn about them or anything like that? I, yeah. And I, I also didn't really, I hadn't interviewed in like nine years. And so I didn't do anything to prepare. And I went in. Mm-hmm feeling like I was the heir apparent and I totally bombed in the interview and I was, I oh. felt so humiliated. Um, and I, you know, I was eliminated from the process, but I came back and I said to myself, I don't ever want to feel like that again. So what do I need to do? And so I actually hired a, an executive coach and, and this was back in the early two thousands. And I remember like sort of scratching my head and being like, I mean, coaching wasn't as big of a thing back then, but saying to myself, I think there's something called like a career coach or an executive coach. I wonder if I can find one. <laughs> it was even before Google. So I was like going on Yahoo and I found yeah. somebody that I worked with. Um, and weirdly enough, uh, they offered the job to somebody and she turned it down and they uh, started the process all over again. And after having worked with the coach for a few months, I reapplied for the job. I, uh, was a finalist. It was me and an external candidate. And I'm a two-time loser because I did not get the job offer. But as fate would have it, the the day I found out that the other candidate accepted the job, I came back from lunch and there was a, a call on my phone, a voicemail from a recruiter. And within like three or four months, I had two job offers. I was actively um, interviewing for a third, and I ended up taking one of the jobs that moved me here to Chicago. And wow. it it was, uh, I think it was a better job than the one I didn't get. So yeah, <laughs> everything happens you, for a reason. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, um, you know, just being willing to keep moving forward and not kind of get stuck in saying, well, okay, like, I really easily could have, you know, after not not uh, advancing after that first round of interviews, I could have said, oh, well, I guess I'm just stuck at this level. I'll never. But I was like, no, I don't I don't want to believe that. I want to believe that I I have more to offer, but I just have some things I need to work on. And just me doing that work, it didn't happen there. But believe me, where I live now, (laughs) I live much better. I live like outside of Chicago. And this was uh, I lived in North Carolina at the time, which, you know, I lived in a lovely community, but there's just so much more going on here. And yeah. Yeah. And it's so important that we do give ourselves permission to ask for help, you know, whether it's a yeah. coach or a therapist. And I, you know, I myself, when I was going through a pivot moment, got an executive coach as well. And I was just thinking to myself, my goodness, why didn't I ask for this sooner? I could yeah. have done this ages ago. <laughs> and it, I it, it really held myself so much faster. Yes. Yes. I, I, I was really... I was hung up on the money, you know, like I, it's so funny because like what I was paying and this, you know, smaller North Carolina city is just really a fraction of what I charge now. But, you know, you can sometimes like look at the price tag and say, oh my gosh, that's a lot. But the return on the investment is what, and I mean, the return on the investment that I made is like, you know, thousands of percent above what I invested. Uh, yeah. But I had to believe in myself enough to say, you know, I'm worthy of this investment. And, and it, is, it comes back to a really important point there is I'm worthy of that worth. Yes. So it's valuing yes. your own worth. It's not about the money. It's about how yes. you value yourself from a worth perspective. And you, yes. you, you, lay, you tag that money value onto yourself and, set, and it's like I'm not worth investing in that it amount goes- of money. Yeah, it goes back to something that I mentioned earlier that, you know, for high achievers, a lot of times they're looking for that validation from other people, Mm. you know, and so I could have easily in that situation, I mean, I'm not, listen, I bumbled along, you know, I just wasn't, I was driven and I didn't want to just sit there and feel like a loser because, you know, I was rejected for a job that I was kind of the heir apparent for, but I, I take responsibility for the fact that I did not mentally promote myself to that level and show up like the leader that they were looking to hire. Um, But by working with somebody, I was able to do that. Um, But, you know, we have to, at some point, you know, shift that, that judgment or that validation uh, responsibility to ourselves. 
you know, like mm -hmm. I didn't, I mean, it didn't feel good that other people weren't validating me, but I was holding on to my own belief that I was worthy of continuing to move up in my career and, and believing that I was smart enough and capable enough of doing that next level job. And so, you know, if you can hold on to that and then the focus becomes, okay, well, how do I build that bridge to the other side? Or how do I make the impression on others that I'm capable of doing this? Because it's not a matter of worth, you know, whether other people think you are worthy, it's really a matter of you demonstrating that you can bring the value if they entrust you with that, with mm. that role. It's a, it's a little bit of a different challenge than, you know, am I worthy? Yeah, you're worthy. Yes, of course you're worthy, right? And it's up to you what you decide to do with that. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to dive into the next, into one of the other pillars, which is thoughts, because I know we've talked a lot about this <clears throat> in this in this show. Is what stupid or crazy thought have you often told yourself in the past that isn't true? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um. Well, I mean. It's it's the one that I think most people struggle with, and that is that I'm not good enough. I'm you know, I think enough. that that's mm -hmm. always been what's driven my um, perfectionism. You know, mm -hmm. and I I'm I'm definitely uh, a recovering perfectionist. And you know, there's certain things that I'm I'm proud of. I'm proud of being detail oriented. I'm I'm proud of you know being able to you know look at situations and discern like what could this be. Um, but I think that, I think that holding on to perfectionism, uh, sometimes keeps me frozen, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm afraid like, oh, if I can't move forward and do this perfectly, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna hurt if I make a mistake or it's going to, um, you know, I'm going to look foolish, which it's funny because I, I have so many, um, you know, friends and, and colleagues that, if I ever will say to them, you know, I, I don't feel good enough. They're like, Oh my gosh, you don't come off that way. You come off very, very confident. And, um, you know, there's just always that little part. Right. And I think that it's just important to be kind to that part, Absolutely. you know, and Absolutely. not, not kind of chastise yourself and say, you know, cause I think in the past I would be very harsh with that part of me and, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, really. But, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, this show is all about brain health and unchaining your pain. And I'd love to dive into that is what what one piece of advice would you give anyone who's kind of winning the game at work, um, but they kind of got to a plateau and they've got this perfectionist mm -hmm. mentality and maybe they've yeah. not got into the recovering perfectionist space. What one yeah. piece of advice would you give to somebody who's at that place? Well, um, what got you here is not going to get you there. Okay, like it's natural as we grow and as we advance at work that we're going to hit new plateaus. And it's, it's important to recognize that we all have blinders on in our mm. lives. And yeah, I mean, we kind of have to because otherwise, like, you know, everything going on around us would just overwhelm us, we wouldn't be able to focus. But we also have to recognize that maybe the part that we're seeing isn't the whole picture, right? Mm. And so if you've gotten to a point and you're trying a lot of things and you're not getting the outcomes that you'd like, maybe you're not trying some things that would actually be effective. And, you know, this is when it's, it's helpful to get somebody involved to help you, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a mentor, whether it's a coach, because they can help you sort of start to expand those or, you know, pull back the blinders a little bit to start to see like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I had other ways of showing up or that if I did something different, I might get a different outcome. And I, mm -hmm. I just see a lot of people, I mean, you know, myself sometimes as well, but I see it a lot with my high achieving clients is that they'll say, well, this always worked for me in the past. And like, well, you're in a new situation now. And so if you're in a new situation, you may need to show up differently to get different results. And this is particularly um, relevant as you move up, you know, levels. And, you know, I kind of mentioned that I did not mentally promote myself. I was like, I was, you know, I was a very effective worker bee, right? But when you become a department head, 
it's a different role. You've got to represent, you've got to direct. It's not about how good somebody is as an individual contributor. It's about how can you leverage the talents of people under you? It's a different skill set. And mm. I've seen it, I've seen it so often where uh, people will be promoted and they they keep doing their old job. And in fact, like it's a lot like of times, having your operating system, isn't it? Where you know you're going to do into a new role, so you need to get a new app or a yeah. new piece of software to deliver that role effectively. Yeah. But in order to deliver it effectively, you also have to fix the software issues that you might have, yeah. bugs in your system that are preventing right. you from running that new software effectively and your existing software effectively. Yeah. It's like you're not getting the updates. That. You're not getting the <laughs> updates, right? Like you've got, you need to get the software, but it only runs on the next level update, but you're trying to run it on the old operating system and, exactly. and it's glitching. It's glitching. <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of times people, you know, as, as managers, you know, one of the things that's important as a manager is to start to think about how do I teach the things that I know to, to the people on my team so that. I can elevate myself to what's required at my level and I can delegate the things that used to be my job that aren't anymore. But I've seen it so often where, I mean, I hear it all the time from my clients, like, it's just faster for me to do it. And I'm like, no, you know, if, if you're doing something that somebody else on your team is capable of doing, even if it takes them longer, you are not doing something that only you can do, you know? Yeah. And that's, that means that, you know, you're kind of like, dipping down to the, the level below you to do that level of work rather than staying up at the higher level. And I can understand why people sometimes do that because it's comforting to be a master of something. Oh, I can, you know, do the spreadsheet really well, quickly. Or they're a perfectionist. Yeah, they right. And <laughs> I, I mean, anything less. I've learned, I mean, and it, it, this didn't come, you know, sim simply or easily, but one of the things that I learned was that when I would be clear about, you know, delegating something and not telling the person on my team how to do it, but what the objective was that yeah. a lot of times they would come up with a way better, faster, cooler way of doing something than I did it. Right. Just because they're a different person, they've got a different perspective. Um, and you've got to, I mean, people like working for managers that allow them to have that kind of freedom exactly. and have enough trust and, and, belief in them to to deliver at their highest and they perform better because yeah, they're not sure. constantly being assessed and being put down because they can't leverage their own internal superpower because just because right. it's not exactly the same as the manager and nobody's the same so right we need to right. leverage the attributes that we all bring together and get the best out of the the system yes definitely and I mean it, if you know, I, I said that a lot of times leaders will say, oh, it's just faster for me to do it. Probably the number one complaint of people who, um, if they have a complaint about their boss, it's that their boss is a micromanager, you know, yeah. because, and I, I look at it like if somebody is micromanaging, you are sending a lot of, of kind of clear messages to the people below you that they're not good enough, that yeah. uh, you don't trust them. Um, and they'll stop performing that, you know, they've done scientific studies where actually micromanagers, it doesn't matter how excellent your team are, the team will default to a lesser level of performance sure. based on they your will, leadership style. So it's will, really vital to get the best out of your team is to give them permission to be them. Yeah, they, they just comply at the lowest required level. And, yeah. you know, the, the interesting thing is, is that a lot of times, as the um, person on the team kind of shrinks back, they're like, okay, you want it done this per, you know, this way, I could do it better, but whatever, or you want it done this way, this perfect way in your mind that, you know, they're just delivering at the minimum, but because they're not giving more, a lot of times the, the leader will micromanage even more and even more. And, and really they need to kind of step out. I, I always say, I use this whole idea of zooming in and zooming out. Um, a lot of times when things aren't going the way that people want them to, they zoom in. Oh, I've got to do more. I've got to go faster. I've got to take on extra projects. And then reality, they need to zoom out and see the big picture, see the dynamics yeah. of the situation that they're in, whether it's, you know, them personally as an individual contributor, 
um, or as a leader to understand like why are people doing this? You know? It's the same oh. as parenting though, isn't it? Because yeah. like as a parent, you can't teach your child to walk <laughs> and and do it for them. You have right. to give them permission to learn how to do it themselves. And yes, it might take them a bit longer, um, but ultimately, unless you allow that to happen, they're never going to get there. And it's the same, you know, with a- any skill set as a your child is learning the process, but eventually mm-hmm. um, they become independent. But if you don't give them an opportunity to flourish and bring different ideas and, you know, uh, different um, insights into the situation mm-hmm. that you'd never have even thought of. And my daughter always comes up with amazing <laughs> quotes and quotes. Right. Is, yeah. is you don't get that richer picture you don't get that you don't get that experience that you would otherwise have of allowing people to just be them exactly and i think that you know whether you're talking about family or you're talking about a team that if every person feels safe to bring their best overall you're going to have a higher level of performance you're going to have a higher level of engagement and satisfaction if people feel like I can be myself and I can bring my strength to the table without feeling like I'm going to be criticized or you know something's going to be taken away from me and I'm going to be told I have to do it this other way that you know that's so important Terry it's been amazing talking to you I know (laughs) we could talk for hours I think we should come back on the show such an interesting topic how can people get hold of you well, they can go to my website, terrybmcdougall.com, and they can set up a, a free exploratory call if they want to learn more. I'm also active on LinkedIn, and my handle there is terrybmcdougall. Um, if you're interested in the topic of marketing or just, you know, conversations with cool people, my podcast is Marketing Mambo, and it's at marketingmambo.net or on any of the platforms. And then uh, finally, if you want to win at work, check out my book winning the game of work on amazon worldwide yeah i love that and i i love your book and it's so relatable um for me so do make sure you get that terry it's been absolutely brilliant i've loved our conversation we've gone so many different places uh and if there's anything i can do to support you and and the clients you serve then please you know do just reach out and i'm sure we'll be connecting uh again very very soon That sounds great, Dr. Ruth. It was so fun talking with you today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're most welcome. And just remember, everyone, this show is all about brain health and unchaining your pain. You're not stuck with the brain you have. As Terry's mentioned, you have the power to make it better. And we're here to show you how. Now there is a message from our sponsors. By Winject Studios, we are an all-in-one educational platform for podcasters that revolutionizes how hosts leverage content to increase engagement with listeners, downloads, and income. We come together to focus on community, collaboration, and collective impact. For more information on how you can interact directly with our hosts, access exclusive live content with offers you can't get anywhere else from our official partners, join our purpose-driven community by visiting www.winject.com. If you're ready to build a career doing what you love, then we're ready to see you there.